The VO Meter, measuring your voiceover progress. The VO Meter is brought to you by VoiceActorWebsites.com, Vocal Booth to Go, PodcastDemos.com, Global Voice Acting Academy, JMC Demos, and IPDTL. And now, your hosts, Paul Stefano and Sean Daly. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 42 of the VO Meter. Measuring your voiceover progress. We have a really exciting show today, one I know Sean never thought would happen, and nor did I, but we're featuring an interview with audiobook narrator and golden voice Simon Vance, so I'm really excited about that. Woo! I'm so fangirling right now. <laughs> he had a lot to say about audiobooks and, and voiceover in general, and uh, we'll take you that interview in just a second. But first, it's time to feature for the second time our new segment, the... VoiceOver Extra brings you the VO Meter Reference Levels. Uh, seriously, guys, that's the best you could come up with? Hey, it's your show. So, Sean, now that we've rolled out this official segment brought to you by VoiceOver Extra, what's going on in your voiceover world? Well, I just did a really cool workshop over the weekend, actually, called Adventures in Voice Acting. So this is run by anime and animation production studio Bang Zoom Entertainment. Uh, they've done a number of properties going back quite a ways, like Naruto and some very famous animes like that. And it was a very intensive workshop. It was two eight-hour days over the weekend. And we did everything. We practiced, like, American-style animation scripts, video game scripts. We got to do a Walla uh, mock session, you know, like a loop group or ADR where you're just kind of background ambient voices. We were, like, at a cocktail party, and we had to pretend we were having real conversations, but not really having conversations, nothing too distracting, that kind of thing <laughs> in the background. And it was a lot of fun and probably the most challenging thing, and it was great because we had a lot of opportunities to do it throughout the weekend was actually dubbing to picture because if you've ever done foreign language dubbing particularly with something like anime this is something where you would very often go into a studio because of the equipment required and they would cue you in with a series of beeps you get a three count so it's like boop 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 and on the imaginary fourth count is when you start your your performance so we would record line by line and we would get the, you'd get the three count and then you'd see it in Japanese so you could get a sense of the timing and the pacing and kind of the emotional intent of the, uh, the original actor. And then they would cue you in and then you do your line and hopefully you'd be able to match it up with the performance. And as long as you're not too slow or too fast, the engineers can usually just kind of adjust the audio to, to make it fit. But all in all, I was really, I was impressed with myself. I was happy with how, uh, with how I did. And you'll be happy to know that I did not blow out my voice this time, unlike my last animation workshop. Uh, I did have this fun moment where I got to do like sort of a battle cry for five seconds. Probably the longest five seconds I've ever experienced, I think. So, uh, but all in all, it was a lot of fun. And if you ever have the opportunity to do adventures in voice acting with Tony Oliver, I highly recommend it. That's awesome. Where was the workshop? So this was at a studio in Seattle next to, to Safeco Field, the ballpark. Uh, or now T-Mobile Stadium. I hate branded stadium. <laughs> Anyways, um, so it, it's right next to the freeway in Seattle, but it's a beautiful studio. I've been there a couple times. I was there for, for an uh, audiobook workshop with Pat Fraley a month before. And, and then, of course, for this workshop. And I know 
Uh, it's probably where I'm likely going to have some new demos made if I ever, like, if I want to go into a studio to have that done. Because I know it's got excellent staff, and there's no doubt that the equipment is awesome. That's really cool. Now, Tony's not from Seattle, is he? No, no. He's a he's a Los Angeles native. And the, the workshop itself is is normally based out of Los Angeles. But it was interesting. Two things, actually. One was the number of L.A. talent who actually flew up to Seattle because his workshop was sold out in L.A. So you know that it's good if people are going that out of their way to attend a workshop. And we also had people coming up from Oregon as well. And one of the, the crazy things is that one of the L.A. talent was this young woman named Brianna McDowell, and she was actually just recently joined the GVA membership. So when I, like, pop into the studio, she's like, wait a minute, I, I know that guy. So, wow, instant uh, street cred. Yeah, yeah, instant street cred. Now, if I had only shown up on time, that would have been better. <laughs> but uh, traffic was bad that morning, I'm sorry. I made up for it the next day. But it was really cool because at the end of the, um, the workshop on Sunday, the, we talked about agents and demos. And, and it was really interesting because there was no doubt that everyone there was very talented. But people were at different stages of their career. Like a lot of them didn't have demos yet or their own website or an agent or things like that. And so Tony was talking about the importance of demos and having them professionally done. And then he's like, but I don't do demos. And then um, he, he directed it to the engineer. And he's like, yeah, we record the demos. But if you want us to do like script writing or like the more work you ask us to do, the more expensive it's going to be. And then so I kind of just put up my hand at that point, And I was like, if you guys need help with like coaching and demo prep, GVAA, like, you know, <laughs> and so. I hope I didn't mean to step on anyone's toes or anything, but it was just a service that they weren't offering. So I was just like, "Hey, hit me up," and then I handed out my uh, my business cards. That's awesome. That. So, um, so that's another great like that is another great reason to do in person workshops because it's kind of like it shows people like your skill level, your passion for VO, and you get to meet a lot of like minded people. And it's really fun to kind of keep in touch with people, like we've said on uh, numerous episodes of the podcast, you never know where your next gig, gig's going to come from. Sometimes a person that you worked with might be starting their own project, or they might have a voice that you know would be suitable for someone else's project. So it's always great to kind of be there, to be, like, of course, be open to learning and stuff like that, but view it as a potential networking opportunity as well. Well, that's really cool. I haven't met Tony, but I did talk to him, if you remember, on... The first trip we made to Otakon down in D.C., he was one of the, the featured speakers there, and we had audio of me asking him a question live on the panel floor and responding back. He does seem like a great great person to work with. I think it would be fun to do that workshop at some point. Very cool. I highly recommend it. I think the farthest east he goes is Chicago. Maybe they'll be doing some more like northeastern stuff that you might be able to join. Uh, and I actually talked to him about being on the podcast, and he sounded game. So we'll see if he, we can get him on as a solo guest. Oh, that'd be cool. Great. Mm -hmm. So anything else going on? Well, it's kind of crunch week for me. I've got a big e-learning project due at the end of the month. Had some exciting and lucrative audition opportunities come in that we can't talk about, but I'm sure Paul <laughs> knows what I'm talking about. Um, so, yeah, just kind of kept going at it. And I like I just wanted to say another great reason to kind of go to these kind of live events is that sometimes it, it's just nice to get out of the studio, right? Like we fall into these routines and sometimes like when the thing that you love is also your job, it kind of can affect your perspective of it. And you can kind of forget what brought, like why you fell in love with it in the first place. So this was a really, 
reinvigorating, re-inspiring kind of event to go to because it's like I really fed off of Tony's passion and he was such a positive guy because he's just like, he's like, man, this, this stuff is hard. You don't have to be any harder on ourselves, right? He's like, all actors have that loud devil on their shoulder telling them they suck. Don't listen to that guy. <laughs> listen to the angel on your shoulder because we got one of those two. Other than that, just kind of, uh, it's been same old, same old, just kind of my usual projects and just auditioning as often as I can, um, preparing this month's workout schedule for Global Voice Acting Academy. We've got some great workouts coming up in September with Carol Monda and MJ Lalo. Uh, other than that, though, you've got some exciting news, Paul. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, thanks. I have a couple of cool things going on. Uh, the first, I have some more audiobooks coming out, and I'm now working on the the fifth book, no, sorry, I think it's the sixth, actually, for the author who started it all with my pseudonym, and that series is finally finishing up. And then uh, I had just finished a book also for the pseudonym, the fourth in a series, although I had only done the last two. But the author liked it so much that he's hired me to finish the series and then hired me for his new series to to finish up that series as well. So it's something like eight books that I'm booked for over the next couple of months, I honestly don't know how I'm going to do it all. It's going to be it's going to be interesting, but we'll get to why that's going to be made possible in the next couple of minutes. But the other thing I wanted to talk about is something I took on about a month ago. I produced a full radio commercial for a local a local bar and local radio station. So it's for ESPN Radio in South New Jersey, and the host of the one of the shows there contacted me and said he needed a full production commercial. Do you do that? And I said. Well, sure, I, I don't see why not. <laughs> and it's one of those things that we talked about where if you have the facilities and the training to do some of these ancillary tasks for voiceover or, or production in general, you may as well make use of the, the technology you have at your disposal. So I did. And what I did was I wrote some copy. I think I mentioned before that my my initial broad, uh, undergrad degree was in broadcast journalism, so I had that writing background, and I'd done some copywriting in the past. So I wrote some copy. I hired a friend of the show, Jamie Muffet, who was on a couple of weeks ago, to do one of the voices for me, and then did one of the voices myself, and then added some production elements and some music, and it came out really well. So I thought I'd actually play it here and let people hear it to get an opinion from them, our listeners, and let me know what you think. Hello, lads and lasses. This be Seamus Fengrin for Josie Telly's Public House. If ye be wanting to grab a proper pint, dance a jig on over to Summer's Point for... Don't listen to that clown. Josie Kelly's Public House is a real Irish pub with delicious traditional Irish fare like fish and chips and shepherd's pie. A full bar featuring craft cocktails and the widest selection of Irish whiskeys around. And of course, we have Guinness, Harp, and Smittix, as well as local craft beers. Plus, Josie's is a great place to watch your favorite teams. Catch Penn State, Temple, and Rutgers on Saturday. And Sunday, swoop in to watch the birds. Hi, this is Dermot Lloyd, owner of Josie Kelly's Public House. I've been working in Irish pubs my entire life. I like to think I brought some Irish charm to the Jersey Shore. If you like good food, cold beer, live music, watching live sports, or maybe you're looking to host a private event, then come down to Josie Kelly's 908 Shore Road in Summers Point or visit our website at josiekellys.com. Hope to see you there. Well done, man. That was awesome. That must have been a lot of fun to make. Yeah, I had a lot of fun being able to do all of it myself because normally, you know, when we're doing voiceover stuff, we don't get the chance to pick out music or hire other voice artists, but 
I got to do it all on this. And Jamie was, was great. He's the, the gist of it obviously was that this is a real Irish pub and Jamie's caricature of the Irish leprechaun was not very authentic. And he had, he had fun doing that. At first he said, you wanted it to be cartoony, right? And I said, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's the whole point. So uh, great thanks to Jamie for pulling that off. Mm-hmm. No, it sounded really good, and I loved like the little uh, biographical bit from uh, from the owner itself. That was really cool. Yeah, we'll say he, the owner Dermot, did did massage the copy a little bit himself, which was great. Which is exactly what I was hoping for because they gave me nothing to go on. They were like, "This is an Irish pub, and uh, they want, they show a lot of football during football season. That's when we're playing it. And that's all I had to go on." <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! So you just kind of like, did you just call him up, like, "Hey, I'm making this commercial for you. Can you help me out?" Like, I was going to do that actually, but I was having trouble hooking up with him. And I have been there before because it's in my brother's hometown, so I had been to the place at least once. And I just wrote a treatment, basically, which is you know like a first draft of the script, and sent it to them. And they said, "Yeah, we love it. We're just gonna add a few of our own details," and that's where we ended up. Well, that's cool. So, um, yeah, definitely uh, think outside the box sometimes. And that was that was something else that I noticed when working with Tony over the weekend was that, I mean, this is a guy who's had a career that spanned over three decades. And I talked to him a little bit about that. And he's like, yeah, man, you have to be willing to do anything in the entertainment industry. Like if there aren't any enough parts to go around, direct, be a writer, produce all these other things. So for us as non-union voice talent, like you might... If you have the comfort and confidence being a producer, that's just another revenue stream that you might be able to take advantage of. And if you're not comfortable, then you can always hire your friends who are good at those things, and you can still take some sort of finder's fee for, for supplying them with their work. Yeah, that's more or less where I ended up on this thing. Um, because I was paying a real rate to Jamie, uh, I don't mind saying that he got the bulk of the of the rate on this <laughs> because <laughs> he was the much more seasoned talent. So I, I still made a profit, but... Um, I was happy to pay a, a, a using a GVA guide actually um, mm-hmm. a proper rate to Jamie for getting this done. Awesome! Well, thank you for being a reputable employer. <laughs> so I'm going to get to my my big news in just a second, but before that, a word from one of our sponsors, Vocal Booth to Go. So Vocal Booth to Go's patented acoustic blankets are an effective alternative to expensive soundproofing. Often used by vocal and voiceover professionals, engineers, and studios as an affordable soundproofing and absorption solution. We make your environment quieter for less. Thanks to Vocal Booth to Go for sponsoring the VO Meter. Now, my big news is that I quit my job, which some of you may be saying, huh? What job? Now, I've mentioned it on a few episodes, but I didn't really publicize it all that much, but I've been working at what used to be my full-time career, part-time for several years, at an online university. And with all the things I have going on, like producing commercials in addition to doing my regular voiceover work and regular clients, it was just becoming too much. And this being the goal all along, to become a full-time voiceover talent, that's the decision I made to to make the leap and, and do that last week. So happy to say I'm now a full-time voiceover talent. Wonderful. Congratulations. Woo! Now, it's a <laughs> bit of a stretch because one of the things that made this happen was taking on a new side gig and I know Sean you're going to talk about how important that is to you in a second but I'm also working with a company now called Twin Flame Studios which is run by a woman named Tina Dietz who some of our listeners may know from some of the Facebook groups and I'm now working as a project manager 
and producer on some of their projects, working on podcast production and editing, audiobook production and editing, and some of the, some other related skills that go well with what I do every day. So while I am a full-time voiceover talent, there's got to be another word for it now, right? Voiceover, voice production, yeah. entertainment industry specialist. I don't know. I'll come up with something. But that that's a pretty exciting leap for me as well, too, because I really like what Twin Flames is doing out there in the world. Very cool. It's so, it's so weird. It's almost like we're following, like, the same paths in reverse. But... Uh... <laughs> Just because, like, like you are now, I have been working with a, like, I don't know, industry professional entity for the last several years with Global Voice Acting Academy. And, of course, I also have my own uh, voiceover clients and projects that I do every month. But uh, recently, I felt like I had kind of both creatively and financially hit a plateau. So, like, I noticed that, like, while I was still retaining my clients, I hadn't lost any, thankfully. I wasn't gaining as many new ones as I had in years past. So, I kind of, uh, and like I said, I was kind of getting a little, like, claustrophobic, kind of isolated in my booth. And so, this winter, like, my girlfriend and I decided to uh, get recertified as lifeguards and work at a local community center. And just because the hours were flexible, the the work itself wasn't too exhausting, I could still come home and and still have uh, plenty of energy to record and do that stuff. And the people there were very accommodating of the schedule that I wanted and how we could both help each other out. Like, so, so it's great. Like, I mean, I, like I guard, I teach water aerobics there. So I get paid to work out basically. And I get all that exercise that I wasn't getting before. So the reason we're talking about this is that, and this is something that I struggled with as well. It can be very discouraging to think that you're dependent on another job, even though like you might be current, like you might be getting paid to do voice work or like we all aspire to be full-time talent. And like I said, there can be this shame or guilt that comes from like, oh, my my income comes from other sources too. Why? I mean, like uh, there have been numerous guests that, that we have and will have on the show that have just said actors since time immemorial have had to make do with survival gigs until their acting took precedent, right? One of our like friend and sponsor of the podcast, Tim Page, mentions that you'll know when to quit your job when you are losing money by not quitting. So I haven't reached that point yet. And even though I was at a point where I was sort of like spending, devoting all of my energy to voiceover, like I felt like it was good to kind of get back out the world, get some work experience. And if nothing else, it makes you that much more appreciative of what you get to do as a voice talent, the things we get to do and the skill set that's required and like the various creative and intelligence that that we do to to create and record and edit all of these wonderful voiceovers and stuff like that. So there's that idea that uh, first off, you're not worried about paying your bills so much. So there's less financial worry. And like I said, there's that life experience and getting to work with other people. Uh, and it can be really beneficial to your work as an actor, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's no shame in it. Um, if you're a fan of the show, you've heard our questionable gear purchases segment. <laughs> Where do you think we get the money for those? Exactly. <laughs> those were entirely financed by my job at the university over the last three years. <laughs> questionable gear fund. I love it. But what it uh, allowed me to do, like you said, it gives you the freedom to to focus on training, focus on equipment, if that's something you think you need to invest in, which we all do at some point, and not worry about the financial burden. Because we've heard from coaches a lot that 
if you feel like you have to get this current job when you're doing an audition, you're not going to get it. You, they'll hear it in your read. You'll, they'll hear the desperation that you're mm-hmm. so anxious to get this this audition done. So make make sure you have a comfortable nest egg before you leap. And I actually was at that point, which is why I, I had to make this move right now because all those books I just mentioned that are coming up, I had no time whatsoever to do them. But wow. the other point I want to make is that if you have the drive, working part-time or even a full-time job won't stop you. As, as mm-hmm. we talked about, I was working this job 30 hours a week. I have three kids. I coach almost all of their sports teams in addition to taking some to guitar and, and saxophone lessons. And now it's marching band coming up. So there's a lot of things going on in my life that prevent me from doing voiceover. But if you have the drive and the determination, you'll make it happen. Absolutely. I mean, we've talked about this, like, I mean, my own journey into voice acting, like my first two years of pursuing it, I had a full-time 40-hour job with like a three-hour commute, <laughs> you know? Wow. So, yeah, it was ridiculous. Uh, I mean, like total, not not there and back, or like right. an hour and a half each way. But still, I mean, you find a way. If this is important to you, you save the money, you don't make excuses, right? Like it, whether you're too tired or you don't have money. Like, if you're too tired, sleep more. Make time for sleep. If you don't have money, make money, right? Do your job. Get a second or third job if you have to. So if this is something that's really important to you, you will pursue it with a tenacity and a patience. That's what's important because it can take quite a while to get a foothold. So if you need advice on how to, like, kind of navigate and balance all of that, reach out to us sometime. We always love hearing from you guys. All right, so we have our interview with Simon Vance coming up in just a few minutes. But before that, a word from one of our sponsors. Let me tell you about Tim Page and his team over at Podcast Demos. Tim and his team have produced over 1,000 podcast intros for some of the biggest podcasts on the planet. Each demo includes custom-written scripts and hand-selected music and is guaranteed to showcase your voice and talent in the best light possible. With a finger on the pulse of what podcast producers want, you can be sure your podcast demo will sound professional, current, and competitive. Now, we've talked about this a lot, but Tim actually produced Paul's and my podcast demos, and all we can say is that he and his team were absolutely amazing. His script writer created original scripts perfect for my voice and personality, as well as reflective of current popular podcast genres. I recorded in the comfort of my own home studio, and Tim worked his mastering magic. The whole process only took a couple of days, and I couldn't be more pleased. Tim is a consummate pro and so easy to work with. Thank you, Tim, and Podcast Demos. All right. Thanks again, Tim, and uh, hope to get some more auditions from you, Mr. Mr. Page. So we'll get to Simon Vance in a second, but now it's time for... Questionable Gear Purchase. All right. So I'm actually... Well, there's a lot of stupid things I've done, but I'm going to save them and, sp- and parse them out over the next couple of weeks and see how that goes. Oh, Maybe it'll man. convince me not to do anything else stupid. So, Sean, why don't you start with anything you might have bought in the last uh, month? Well, in a sec, like, I think at some point we need to do like an entire Questionable Gear episode, so maybe... Yeah, good idea. Yeah, we'll figure it out sometime soon, but I just wanted to bookmark that so I didn't lose that idea. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, you guys might be surprised. I actually bought stuff this month. Oh my God, it's been a while. So I got two things. One of my favorite sort of like mic stands to use in my booth, since it's that typical kind of like PVC frame uh, setup, is the Stage Ninja Scorpion. It's like a C-clamp kind of adjustable mic stand that I actually suspend from the roof of my booth and then have it hanging or have my mic hanging down. 
And what that does is that frees up the the space in the booth so I don't actually need to have like a mic stand in it and like I don't have to worry about hitting anything with my arms or my feet if I gesticulate stuff like that. So I have a couple of these in here to hold my mics, to hold my iPad, things like that. And I got a little accessory kit. And what that does is it's got like a little extension neck so you can make one of those like these things are totally modular so you can actually like snap them apart like Legos and then make them even longer with additional pieces and kind of like cannibalize the other stands you have and make them even longer. But so they have that. It also had like a little Y section so I can have two mic arms suspended from the same clamp. So I was thinking of having my 416 on one, my iPad on the other, Uh, maybe even have like mixer face on one and then like my iPad or iPhone on the other, things like that. And speaking of mixer face, the last adapter piece is actually a little camera thread mount. So adapter, so it allows me to hold an actual DSLR camera or an item like the mixer face, which has that same thread in uh, drilled into the back. And my latest purchase, uh, or questionable gear purchase, the Apogee One Plus. Ooh. So, yes, I went fancy. So, many of you probably are familiar with Apogee. They make wonderful uh, preamps, interfaces. Like, they made uh, such famous models as the Apogee One, the Apogee Duet, uh, the Ensemble, things like that. And they also made one of the most portable USB mics on the market, the Apogee Mic. Now, it's been through several different iterations over the years, and I've even had one of the earlier ones, too. I had the Apogee 96K for a while, but um, unfortunately, mine got wet because the, uh, the included carrying kit, uh, I did not realize, was not waterproof, and my bag got rained on, unfortunately. But anyway, so uh, I got rid of that, but a few years later, I was really impressed with the, the changes they made with the Apogee Mic Plus. Because even though the the mic was famous for having like a great sound, I mean, I know uh, like Joe Cipriano even endorsed it when it came out, and who? Uh, and a lot of uh, who who's that guy? <laughs> <laughs> who knows Joe? Nobody knows Joe. Anyways, um, if that's not enough to convince you, other great talents like Maurice Lamarche or James Arnold Taylor or Steve Bloom have all used this mic as their primary, uh, their sort of like sub travel rig you know just something to put in the dash keep in the car with you for those emergency auditions that come in last minute and you just need something to record but anyways i was really happy with the latest iteration of this the mic plus but i was not so happy with the price tag which is about 260 dollars new yeah that's a lot i mean that's one of the main reasons why a lot of people uh we talked about usb mics and versus xlr mics and Honestly, the gap of audio quality is shrinking every year. USB mics sound better and better every year as the technology improves, right? And we're able to cram higher quality technology into a smaller, smaller size. But the issue is, is versatility and upgradability, right? Because once you reach a certain point, all of the components of a a mic you can't really upgrade, or of a USB mic you can't upgrade. So... If you want to upgrade, you have to replace it, basically. But anyways, I'm getting on a tangent here. The point I was trying to make is for that price of 260 you can easily get an interface and a decent mic to start off with. And then you can just uh, upgrade incrementally. But regarding this particular Apogee, I was kind of scoping around eBay, and I found a open box discount for $100 off for 160 hmm. And I almost couldn't control my hand i was just like ah. 
dang it. <laughs> you know? So I'm still waiting for it to arrive, and I'm really excited to try it out. And like I said, I have all of these peripherals that allow me to co- or connect it, like my, my Joby Smart Rig and the new um, accessories that I got for my, my mic stands. So it seemed like a good time to have, and I wanted to be able to use it for like some of the voiceover workouts that I lead, for whenever I'm doing a directed session and I want the client to have an idea of what my studio space sounds like, or even if I'm working with another coach and I don't want to power up uh, the whole studio setup. So I actually got the idea from James Arnold Taylor because that's what he does is he'll have like his Apogee mic connected to his iPad in his studio so that the client will call in on Skype or whatever and they can get a sense of what his audio sounds like but he's still like his actual setup is still free to record everything locally. So hmm. I thought that was really attractive uh, as an option. And now, unfortunately, the, the iPhone no longer has that eight inch connector for most headphones. So this is like a neat little interface thing that I can plug into and still take advantage of that connection for a few more years. Very cool. All right. But what about you? What's on the, the QGP list for you, Paul? Well, I got a little out of hand since the last episode. Um, like every time? Well, yeah. <laughs> and maybe it'll sound out of hand to you. Maybe it'll sound like a normal show to everybody else. But I, um, when I had the the guys at Vocal Booth to go come in here and reconfigure the booth, I wanted to see if I could get another condenser in here that would work pretty well and not have a lot of outside noise for long-form narration or audiobooks. So... I think I mentioned what I'm using right now is the Audio-Technica BP-40. It's a dynamic mic, which I do like the sound of a lot. But I wanted to see if I could get that one more tiny bit of, of clarity and nuance out of a condenser like I had used in the past. Mm-hmm. So I bought a blue dragonfly, which I had always kind of lusted after. <laughs> Just sight unseen, but I, I had looked at them a couple of years ago where they were... and I found one for about half that. So I took the plunge and tried it out. And it sounded really good. I did like it, but I still couldn't have it in here. It was way too sensitive. It has a really big capsule. Mm -hmm. So I uh, almost immediately got rid of that and didn't didn't keep it. And then I bought the Neat King B, which is another microphone that was pretty expensive when it came out. It was actually created by former employees of Blue Microphones who went and started a company for Gibson or a sub- sub-company for Gibson, and made these microphones that were all bee-themed. And this one was the the Neat King Bee. You may have seen it. It has this yellow and black alternating pattern, sort of like a barbershop pole, but with yellow and mm. black, and then a you yellow You can definitely see, filter. like, the hints of blues aesthetic in those designs. Yeah, definitely. But uh, it's all yellow and black to look sort of like a yellow jacket. It comes in this crazy, huge case that is shaped like a beehive. Mm. So has a nice has a nice... Uh, uh, packaging to it, and Can that. I, say, I always thought that the idea of a king bee was funny because I mean bees are a matriarchy. But just... <laughs> you should have gotten on their branding team. Maybe that's why they're no longer in business. So maybe, maybe <laughs> they actually shut down the line. Packaging. Yeah, they actually shut down the line, which is why it was so cheap. But um, if you watched the latest episode of Voiceover Body Shop, they actually were laughing at me for <laughs> for purchasing this mic. I want to <laughs> check that out. <laughs> uh, it was funny. But um, they had actually tried it out in a shootout a couple of years ago, too. And my point is, it, it, the price was just too good to pass up. It was $100 now on Amazon, so I had to get it. And 
it also sounded really good, like really, really good. I was really impressed with the way it sounded. I compared it to the Cad E100 I used to have in here, the Cad E100S. Oh, wow. It, it sounded almost identical in tonality and, and pickup pattern. But that was also too sensitive, which is why I no longer have the Cad. So mm-hmm. didn't keep that either. And um, Didn't you say it was quite um, bassy as well? It picked up, I said it picked up low end well, which is oh, good for oh, me. Oh, I misunderstood, which which was a similar problem you had with the CAD. Ah, I got right. it, I got it. So then I decided that maybe the, the neat worker bee would be a good a good replacement because that... Let's try out the whole line. Yeah, because that also was on a fire sale, whereas that used to be around $250. I got one for 50 so I figured I'd give that a try too. And it's a similar aesthetic, except it's about half the size of the capsule. It's a medium, or sorry, a small um, capsule condenser as opposed to the large and the king bee mm-hmm. and uh i also like that but ultimately it wasn't any better than like 10 other mics i've had over the last couple of, <laughs> of years so i got rid of that as well uh, so now back to where i started i'm still using the bp40 and uh probably won't change that anytime soon that's a lie nice. but at least i'll say that for now well actually there's a couple of mics that you might be interested in because i know you're trying to find that kind of that balance one is kind of hard to find, but I did see somebody uh, selling one recently. It was like the K-E-L-U-M-D, I think. It was like a two or $300 mic. They said it was a condenser that sounds like the Shure SM7B. Ooh. So, yeah. <laughs> that is exciting. And, yeah, yeah. I thought that would pique your interest. I'll try and find a link for you as well. And one of the, the mics that I've been lusting after for a while, and I wish I had gotten it when it was first released, is this dynamic, broadcast dynamic from uh, Gefell. They make the my the, the same company that makes my condenser mic, the Gefell M930, uh, the MD300. And when it came out, it was like a $500 dynamic, which is not unheard of. But then um, they lost, like, they don't have as many U.S. suppliers as they have in the past, so that price quickly went up to, like, $770. Wow. And then it's, like, another $100 to $200 for their shock mount. So I don't know if I would rather get that than, like, a used 103 or something like that. But, like, aspirational QGB goals, right? <laughs> so Gefell MD300? Yes, Gefell MD300. Huh, so, interesting. I mean, you might you might save more money if you just flew over to Germany and see if you could get it locally. Um, maybe I could get Armin to bring me one. Yeah. Armin? I mean, come to New York, maybe? <laughs> Good idea. Good call. I wonder where they, like, I wonder what suppliers they have over there. But anyways, if you guys can glean anything from these stories, it's that deals can be had, especially if you're patient, right? I mean, both of the, like, both the mics that Paul got recently and the Apogee Mic Plus have been out for a couple of years now. And whether they get discontinued or maybe a newer model uh, is made, that's an opportunity to really reap on some discounts. Unless, of course, you're like us and buy multiple cheap mics. But anyways... Yeah, it's kind of um, like cell phone technology, right? If you if you don't need the iPhone 10, what is it, 10 Plus R now? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're happy with the, the 8 Plus... You can save yourself about half the price and still have a heck of a phone. Works the same way with microphones. I'll take silver medals any day, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, that pretty much wraps up our questionable gear purchases. We'll get to our interview with Simon Vance in just a second, right after these sponsors. Right, so let me tell you about our sponsor, IPDTL, which is the cost-effective ISDN replacement. It's great for interviews, outside broadcasts, and voiceover. There's no special hardware or software required. It works anywhere with an internet connection. 
There are monthly or annual subscriptions, and the best part is it runs in the Chrome web browser. And overall, it just works. So thank you to IPTTL for being a sponsor of the show. How many times has this happened to you? You're listening to the radio when this commercial comes on. Not unlike this one. And this guy starts talking. Not unlike myself. Or maybe it's a woman that starts talking. Not unlike myself. And you think to yourself, geez, I could do that. Well, mister, well, missy, you just got one step closer to realizing your dream as a voiceover artist. Because now there's Global Voice Acting Academy. All the tools and straight-from-the-hip, honest information you need to get on a fast track to doing this commercial yourself. Well, not this one exactly. Classes, private coaching, webinars, home studio setup, marketing and branding help, members-only benefits like workouts, rate negotiation advice, practice scripts, and more. All without the kind of hype you're listening to right now. Go ahead, take our jobs from us. We dare you. Speak for yourself, buddy. I like what I do. And you will, too, when you're learning your craft at Global Voice Acting Academy. Find us at globalvoiceacademy.com. Because you like to have fun. Walgreens. Because it's flu season. You live in a place with doorknobs and handrails and, you know, people. We tried booking a vacation rental on one of those other websites. They don't always tell you everything. The stars take it to the red carpet. We are back live from the red carpet. California leads the way for change in America, and so does Kamala Harris. Rated M for Mature. Claire Redfield. And who exactly are you? So, yeah, what hashtag should I use to describe a grown man in a tuxedo wrestling a goat? And prior to 1933, many of them belonged to a variety of political parties that were now outlawed in Germany. This is the story of how Q got curly. Quinn was crazy about curls. Curly fries, curly straws, curly-haired dogs. Hey, Jay Michael here. Thanks for listening to the VO Meter Podcast. It's one of my favorites. If you're looking for a great demo like the ones you just heard, check out jmcdemos.com for more information. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Our guest is Simon Vance, who began his illustrious narration career as a BBC radio presenter and newsreader in London and is now the critically acclaimed narrator of nearly a thousand audiobooks, winner of 70 audiophile earphone awards and a 16-time audio award recipient. Some of his best-selling and most critically acclaimed performances include Bring Up the Bodies by Hilary Mantel and Rod, the autobiography of Rod Stewart. Other well-known titles include The King's Speech by Mark Logue and Peter Conradi, Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander series, all 21 titles, Frank Herbert's original Dune series, Stieg Larsson's Millennium series, which you might know from The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and Alan Moore's magnum opus Jerusalem, something that took 10 years to write and was over 60 hours of final produced audio. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our absolute pleasure to introduce the man with more Audi nominations for single voice titles than any male narrator on the planet. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Simon Vance. How Yay. are you doing, sir? I'm doing fine. That was fun to sit through. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it was an audiobook-sized intro for you. Yeah. But we are so happy to have you. So, how are you doing? Um, I, I'm doing pretty good. I... I... <laughs> I got terribly sick yesterday, but we don't need to go into that. For some reason, I'm feeling remarkably good today, and it may be because I knew I was going to be talking to to you and Paul. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. So I mentioned in the intro that you started your career as a BBC radio presenter and newsreader. How exactly did you start from there and get to where you are now as a critically acclaimed audiobook narrator? Well, 
It's it started because I uh, there's connections that go back further than the BBC, but I'll try and cut that short because we don't have a huge amount of time, and I could go on for hours about this. But I um, I had a school friend who went to the BBC to be a Radio Four news reader, and I visited him in his uh, apartment, and he had a book on the side um, that that um, I asked him about, and he said, "Oh yeah, I record for the blind." In my spare time, I do my regular shifts at the BBC, but in my spare time, I, I give a couple of hours a week, an afternoon a week, to the Royal National Institute for the Blind's Talking Book Service. I think it's called something slightly different now. But uh, when I went up to the BBC, I, I went up in, in 1983 uh, to Radio 4, and I hadn't been in London before. I didn't have a lot of connections. And I found I had a lot of week, uh, weekdays free because I'd worked weekends. And I didn't know what to do. And I thought, oh, I know. This friend of mine, Chris, had done the RNIB. I love reading. I'll go. I'll go and do that. So um, I I volunteered. I took the audition, and they said, "Well, you're okay." Yeah. So I went along for one afternoon a week, about eight, nine, eight or nine years while I was at the BBC, and I always look on that as my um, apprenticeship. Um, it was almost unpaid apprenticeship. They paid us something like five pounds an afternoon for travel expenses, but um, that was basically where I I learned the trade. Well, you obviously took to it, and. You've you've haven't looked back, so to speak. So tell us what do you like most about audiobooks versus other types of voice work? <laughs> um I I think this is, says something about me. I think one of the things I love about it, although I can be a bit of an exhibitionist, I, I can go up on stage and perform and do all kinds of things. I was an actor for years. Um I rather like being on my own i like being shut into this little six by four cubicle um and it's all up to me and i've heard this uh, a lot of people have said it that the great thing for an actor is that as opposed to being on stage where you have to listen to what the director says and you've got to work with all these other uncooperative actors it can be really a stressful occasion in the cubicle there's no one else it, it when when i'm i'm working i mean i can occasionally work with a director but it's very rare usually i'm left to my own devices and that's the way i like it i i am the voice of god in the book as it were i am everything i'm all the characters i dictate everything that happens so that's that's perhaps one of the main aspects of it that i i, I love when i look back on why i'm doing it and i think the other things i do i, I mentioned i love reading and i i love immersing myself in other worlds um, I, I think um, I, I might have been one of the first to mention, I know way, way back, I've heard many people say this since, but back in about 2008 when I got the uh, um, book list award, Voice of Choice, I, I mentioned in my speech that um, it's a little like stepping into a TARDIS. Because back in 2008, not everybody over here knew about Doctor <laughs> Who, but it's, I don't know where I'm going to go. And it's an adventure. Every day is an adventure. Every week is a different, it's a completely different adventure with a different book. Uh, and it's that. Uh, I could almost be accused of being ADHD, perhaps, but I'm not. <laughs> but I think it's the kind of a job that appeals to people who like change. And I love mm -hmm. to change. I love the change up that happens between books. So speaking of that, I mean, nowadays you hear the importance for actors to kind of to find their niche, to really get super specific and focused. But you, on the other hand, I mean, you've done almost a thousand books from just about every genre and have managed to win awards for many of them, including fiction, nonfiction, mystery, history, science fiction, and fantasy. How does each genre affect your approach to how you prep and narrate a certain work? Well, just go back to the first part of your, your um, question. Was, uh, I, I, I was very lucky. I came into the business when there weren't that many narrators. I mean, 40, 50, maybe a few more. I don't know. I only knew maybe a dozen. And I got to do everything. There wasn't a question of 
this is this genre is are you good at this genre i think i auditioned uh, for the stephen matrin um aubrey uh, jack aubrey books patrick o'brien's books i i did audition for that because i think they wanted to see if i could narrate a battle scene but i was i'd already been narrating for about 12 years over here by that time and i was pretty good at just about everything so i'm very lucky in that sense and i i often wonder how on earth i would have found my way into the industry these days Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I don't know what genre I'd be particularly good at if I were to start now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I do so many different things. Do I, do I, does it make a difference to me what genre I'm going to be reading? Not really. I mean, not, not, from, not from the sense of how I read. Um, and that may be blasphemy to some people because I know people <laughs> teach in sort of styles and you, you narrate mm-hmm. this way if it's that book and this way if it's that book. But it, you're always telling a story. And I think the only difference is for me from a technical standpoint, a fantasy is going to have a thousand odd words and names that you're going to have to uh, either make up or, or negotiate with the author uh, as to how they, uh, how they should be pronounced. I say negotiate. The author has the final say, of course. Mm-hmm. The author can provide lists and so on. But, but apart from that it's 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 a it's an instinct it's a mindset i i'm not somebody who can say well now it's this book i'm going to read it this way i think probably if you look back at how i've narrated a mystery and how i've narrated a horror and how i've narrated a fantasy there are probably subtle differences i don't know what they are i i find <laughs> if i if i step into a room it's like here's a, here's a metaphor I'm, I'm i've suddenly come up with but if you step into a room you don't know if you don't know what's in the room or who's in the room, you don't know quite how you're going to behave. But there are certain ways. If you step into the room and Her Royal Majesty, the Queen of England, is in the room, you're going to behave in a different way from if you walk in and there's your best mate from the pub. And it's sort of a little bit like that. That's mm-hmm. a that's a, a metaphor off the top of my head. It may not entirely work, but it, it just seemed to come to me that that's the way it is. You, you, start, you, you look at a book and you go, oh, this is this kind of book. Okay, this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to speak it like this. And I, I don't think there's hard and fast rules from one. I think you can read a horror like a murder mystery. You can probably read a romance like a thriller. It, it, so many things, because often there's an aspect of everything in every other one, if that makes sense. <laughs> well, on a, on a related note, let's talk a little bit about your characterization choices. Do you approach it the same way for each genre or does it kind of depend on the source material? Well, it, it does. I mean, in, in that sense, perhaps the genre, but it, it depends how the how the author well I, I mean, the examples would be you know if it's charles dickens they're very broad characters and, and you I, I know that world that's an easy word and there are writers who'll write like that if it's a comedy if it's a, a humor book uh, then you're going to have some liberality with the with the way that people are and you'll you'll get sort of eccentrics and so on if it's a, a murder mystery you don't want too many huge broad characters you don't want to indicate who people are necessarily because you might be giving away the plot i'm very Unprocess worthy, if that's a word. I um I I tend to go by instinct all the time, um, and because I work alone and don't have a producer, director, and studio time to pay for, and all the rest of it, an engineer and so on. If I feel like something's not working, I can stop and go back and do it again. For the most part, I feel like it's it, it tends to work. My instincts are pretty good. Um, I was just looking because an audiophile magazine did in, in June is audiobook month. They had profiles every day of their golden voices, and I was one of them. And they mentioned "Girl with a Dragon Tattoo," and um, the comment they had from a, somebody reviewing it was that all the voices 
fit perfectly. And I thought, oh, that's good. I'm so glad. <laughs> um, it's like, oh, I guess they did. Um, uh, I feel like, you know, I'm telling a whole story. I don't want to do anything that jars the listener out of the story. I think that's a good rule. You don't want to be picking a character that doesn't fit. Otherwise, the listener's going to be sort of thinking about you and what you or, or that voice or that person and they're not going to be listening to the story so whatever you do needs to fit with the story and and that in a sense will mean that certain genres may get different voices i mean you're the obvious in fantasy you're going to have a lot of orcs and trolls mm-hmm. um and you don't have a lot of trolls with with high-pitched voices um talking very delicately i suppose we could now i don't know yeah. but most of the time they're all like that and they're like that so um that's the kind of voice i do for that you know, so it does vary along across the way, but it's usually, as I say, instinct. Very cool. So extending from that, do you find that you have to tweak voices since it's such an instinctive process, or is it you just make that choice at the beginning and that tends to be the one that fits, that feels appropriate to you? Yeah, I, am, I think it's important. You, I, I Tweaking something later on is difficult because then you might have to go back and read Oh, absolutely. That 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 was... But, but uh, <laughs> no, I get it. Here's, here's an interesting thing, though. I, I was responding to uh, somebody sent me, uh, a friend knew somebody who knew somebody who, who liked books and had a couple of questions. And one of the questions they said, it, it felt more like a criticism. It was like, why, why, do, why do voices vary sometimes? And it's like, oh, God, do they? Which one did I do where they vary? <laughs> you hope they don't. And... Yeah, I mean, I, it's just that, that would be a, a mistake. I, I think, I think it comes immediately, or not at all. And so I don't find myself mm. double guessing later on. I, I think it's rare that I've ever. Got, I mean, the thing is, you tend to review the book. I, I, I hesitate to say prepare by reading it one hundred percent because I'm very experienced and I can pick up a lot from a, a scanning the book. I tend to scan the book. If I'm looking for words then I'll scan words. Sometimes I'll read it solidly. I'm right in the middle. Uh, you mentioned the girl with the dragon tattoo. I'm about to start recording the sixth book in that series uh, next week. So I'm actually reading that solidly because it's the kind of book that you need to know who the good guys are, who who the bad guys are. And there's a lot of characters coming back from previous books. So I've got to find out who they are and and uh, refresh my memory on on the voices. But um, generally speaking, I will get the idea of the character by scanning the book, and that'll be enough. And so when I commit at the beginning, I'll stick with that voice. Well, we talked a little bit about this at Johnny's Splendiferous Workshop, how uh, somebody asked this question about going back and and readjusting characters, and I can't remember if it was you, but I don't think it was. But whoever it was said, well, I like to think that the character grows in the story, and I reflect that as I'm growing into the character with my vocalizations. So in some ways, it's a, it's a give and take. And if, I guess mm. if you do it right, then the character should be a little bit different at the end of the book than they were at the beginning. Would you agree well, with that? It depends how long the book is. And I think, I, I, I don't remember precisely, but I, I don't know whether they were talking about a series. And obviously, characters will change over a long series. Um, and I think one of the things that came up, I know this came up recently, I don't know if it was then, but... Um, where you give a, a particular voice to one character who's a small character in the first book, and it turns out they're the main character in the fourth book, mm-hmm. and you gave them an impossible voice in the first book. So somehow they've matured enough to change their voice into something that you can do for three or six hours by the fourth book. Um, yeah, I think know, that was Johnny's story about how he, he had a little boy who was asthmatic, and he made him completely over the top with sort of choking on every word, and then he couldn't maintain that for the, the standalone book. <laughs> Yeah, so the doctor somehow found a cure, or at least <laughs> exactly. alleviated the uh, the sound of his voice. By the <laughs> That's definitely a danger. 
Yeah. So we spoke about some of your uh, the awards that you've received over the years. One in particular that I found particularly impressive was in 2017, you received the award for Best Male Narrator for Alan Moore's Jerusalem. I mean, not only was that an epic project, but I'm just curious what your experience was narrating the book and what it was like to receive such a prestigious award like that. Wow. Uh, the award, uh, it's fantastic when that, that happens. I've, as you listed, I do have a few of those. Um, but the one for for that one, particularly the amount of work I put into that book, it was like, uh, um, yes, you know, I... I I did what I, I needed to do. Um, the actual process I went through with that, they asked me, a recorded books called me on this, and I was like, Alan Moore? Oh, my God! And I contacted, um, I, I know Neil Gaiman vaguely, and I contacted him because I wanted to share the news, and I didn't think it was anything I'd talk about publicly. To mm-hmm. And he said, oh, do you want me to put you in touch with Alan? And I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, you should go over there. You should go visit and spend some time with him because he always writes about his hometown in Northampton. And I thought, I didn't have time. And it turns out, because then I went to APAC, um, the, the audio publishers conference, and, and there were big banners everywhere for Alan Moore, Jerusalem. I thought, this is an important book. <laughs> and I thought, I'd better see if I can find space. And I actually have four or five days just before I was due to start recording it. They wanted it at the end of June, uh, and I had about four days at the beginning of June. So I flew to England. I got uh, I got Neil to contact to get through to him and arranged uh, a bit of a rigmarole trying to get in touch with him because Alan doesn't carry a phone with him. You have to leave a message at his home anyway. <laughs> um, we eventually got in touch. I went over there. I met him for an afternoon. He wandered around the town. And it was wonderful to spend time with um, not only the author of the book I'm about to read, but such a fascinating man. Um, and I... Flew there, flew back, started recording the next day, and it was, uh, as you say, 60 hours. I managed it in just under a month. Um, I think there were 30, 30 chapters, and I tried to do about one chapter um, one chapter a day, something like that. That's incredible. Um, That's about 20 it, hours a week, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it was probably about 12, 15 hours. But it was, um, it was, it was extraordinary because each chapter was uh, mostly a story unto itself. Some of them did connect, but some of them focused on one thing, and it, it just it split up nicely. But so much variety, so much mm. incredible variety, and it, it, it wandered through time and it wandered through oh heaven and hell and everything else. It's an incredible book, but it was, um, it was a tough one. And there was one chapter that Alan had described in one of his pre-publication interviews as frankly unreadable, for which I thanked him. <laughs> and, he, and I said, can you give me any clues here? He said, well, um, read it with an Irish accent. <laughs> so I did. for Joyce, huh? And that worked. Well, it was, um, it was basically, he did, uh, he did uh, chapters styled on authors. So he had, uh, I can't think of the authors he chose, but various different authors. And this was one that was James Joyce, like Finnegan's Wake. Is it Finnegan's mm-hmm. Wake? Is that the one that's incomprehensible? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ulysses, I thought. Well. Yeah. Um, I'm going, I don't know. Yeah, you, you this is possibly. No, what's the one? Yeah, anyway, it was the one that, that is, takes years to understand. Um, anyway, I did it, and I sort of understood it, and I had to have a director actually listen in. I wanted my director to listen in on that. Normally, I was fine with it. And he did, but after the first few hours, he uh, he said, you're fine on your own. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was just it was a uh, the whole thing was a quite a mammoth exercise so as you say finally to get the award at the end of it was um 
was thrilling and a mm. sort of justification. Yeah, it was worth it. Well, you mentioned APAC, Simon, and I attended my first APAC this year, I'm ashamed to say, but I had a great experience, especially as, as being a first-timer. Can you tell me, as such a veteran of the industry, what do you look to get out of a conference like that? It's hard to say what I get out of I, I mean, I get out of meeting. I, I meet people. I, as I said, I like to sit in this box on my own. I like that most of the time, but I also like to meet people as well. And it, it does give me a chance to meet, uh, you know, other people who work within the industry, a lot of my old friends and publishers and so on that I've known for years. I've been narrating in the States for 27 years, something like that. And, and there's, always, there's always something to learn. Sitting in on some of these, I'm trying to think what I watched this year, but um, there's, there's always going to be little things. And sometimes it's not that you're learning something new. It's just refreshing your memory about that. Oh, I should keep that in mind um, when I'm working. I, I think there was a lot of stuff I missed this year, unfortunately. I went to a few of the sessions, um, but I hear there's some very, very good sessions. Um, APAC is an extraordinary opportunity for narrators new to the business or not long in the business. Um, because it really can expand your horizons. Uh, it's difficult. You don't want to go running up to people and say, employ me, you know, take me on or <laughs> answer all my questions, please. It's, it's the beginning of a social connection. And I'll tell you, when I, I was working in my little box in the corner of the garage or whatever, years before I went to New York for an APA event, my first one was a uh, um, was this? kind of a speed dating thing. It's not like it is now, but I got to stand in front of an audience of 30 publishers and I read for five minutes. And then afterwards, we went and talked to each of the publishers doing the sort of speed dating thing. On that occasion, I had nothing to do with APAC. I didn't, it wasn't a conference, but I got to meet people from Tantor Audio. Um, and two years later, one of them employed me. Prior to that, I'd only worked for Blackstone and Books on Tape. But um, it, it was the beginning of meeting people, and it was a few years after that that things just exploded in the industry, and uh, I was able to take advantage of, of having met the people at APAC. It's a little different now, and people ask me, how do you get into the industry? What's good to do? And so on and so forth. And I'll still say going to APAC is very good. But it's, 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 it was easier in my day because there were fewer of, fewer of us. Um, it's it's a very delicate dance you have to do, as I say, between um, you know getting noticed and just and getting noticed. You know you don't want to you can get noticed in a good way or you can get <laughs> noticed in a bad way, and it's it's that delicate well dance of okay, just be a nice guy. It's um, and I hope I can say this on your on your podcast because I I was just in a vocal masterclass and they were talking about other areas of voiceover and they had agents on the on the panel and stuff and they said here's the rule number one don't be a dick <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that is so true across almost every industry probably but mm. it's important you know you be a nice guy be a good fun person people like you and you don't have to go and say hey i'm a brilliant narrator they'll find out when they if they get to like you at your mm -hmm. and you're at apac it's a given if you're at apac you're either a narrator or a publisher so they'll uh, they'll find you somehow so speaking of sort of guiding newer uh, aspiring audiobook talent you actually coach as well so i'd love to hear a little bit about how you got into doing that okay i i don't coach uh, regularly. Um, I will turn up at uh, Johnny Heller's Splendiferous Workshop on a panel or two, and I'm actually going to go off to his uh, New England narrator retreat this year. Um, but I don't do, I, I don't coach in the same way that uh, Sean Pratt does or Johnny mm -hmm. Heller himself. I don't have a regular coaching group, and I don't, because here's my thing I, I don't, I 
I think you may have guessed by now, I don't know exactly what it is that I'm doing right. <laughs> I have some ideas, and but it would need me to sit down and and write those ideas down. <laughs> I'm a very lazy person. Um, I love it when they come out instinctually. I, I love it when I can sit with a panel, I listen to people, and I go, oh, you know what? Um, do this or think this. Oh, this is what I do. Oh, I, th- I think maybe that's what I do. Why don't you try that? that mm-hmm. I'm very messy in that respect. So I don't, I, and I don't want to take people's money on false pretenses. Mm-hmm. Now, it may be down the road, I shall have formulated i'm way better knowing what i'm doing now than i was 10 20 years ago i have some idea of what it is that i'm doing right but it's 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 i don't have the language mm-hmm. to make it clear to a student like scott teaches at the ucla now scott brick and they have courses and so on and so forth and it sort of I know I'm. I know I'm good. That sounds very modest, of course. I know I can. I can do this. I know I must be doing something special. But I don't know quite what it is. And I, I, I mentioned this vocal masterclass I went to. There was a. We did a vocal jazzercise thing to warm everybody up beforehand, and they were splitting us into parts. And some guy came in and said, "Oh, people doing that part, put in a little." And it was so instinctual for this guy to say, "This will make it sound better," and it did. It was fantastic. But I, I looked at this guy and said, this guy lives and breathes choral singing or, or you know, chorus mm-hmm. singing, backing singing. Whatever. He knows instinctively what it is. And I sort of know instinctively what sounds good, but I don't have the language necessarily to, 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 <laughs> to have people pay me lots of money to, to be able to mm-hmm. nail it in, in one hour or something like that. Mm-hmm. You just need a translator. One of the highlights of, of Johnny's <laughs> workshop was... Simon saying uh, a phrase at the panel, and then Paul Allen Rubin would jump in and say, wait, 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 what Simon actually means is this. And then he would go on for another, like, 10 minutes explaining what Simon wanted to say and probably did it better if I'm hearing your opinion right, Simon. Uh, well, Paul is wonderful. I love Paul, but he, he's not, not a guy I would have thought of as being uh, concise. He, he, can, he can talk. So I felt slightly insulted that I thought I was being precise and he would come in and say, well, I think I can say what Simon's saying in fewer words. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I love Paul. It was it was a funny moment, and uh, we played on that joke through the rest of the day. Right. In fact, he's going to be out at the New Hampshire retreat, so I think mm-hmm. I'll try and get my own back on him. That's great. But, uh, I wouldn't feel too guilty about that, Simon. I mean, because in any profession, there are people who can do it and people who can teach it. Like you said, it's a different skill to be able to articulate what you're doing to someone else and guide them to that path. But like we were talking about before, I think your your air of spontaneity, your confidence, and your instincts are definitely useful for aspiring talent to pay attention to. So mm. I think you can bring value in that direction. Well, that's good of you to say. It gives me confidence when I go <laughs> Johnny's next, uh, next retreat. Because it's a funny thing. You know, I, I, I used to do a class uh, that was Voice One in San Francisco. Um, Elaine Clark runs mm-hmm. that school, uh, Voice School. And I'd go in there and do sight reading and stuff. And uh, I think I've done a couple of audiobook ones. And I'd, I'd be terrified in the weeks leading up to it. Like, have I, uh, you know, I, I, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? How am I... On the day, in the moment... I loved it. I love teaching in the moment, but it's the prep. It's it's trying to figure out, worrying about whether I'm going to do the right thing and the fact that people are paying me, oh, God. 
So, um, no, it's nice to know. And I, I, but I think I may for now anyway continue with the uh, off-the-cuff coaching, if that's mm-hmm. what you call it, the sort of in the moment. Very cool. Well, well, Simon, one thing I was curious about is your performance. You mentioned being in the little box most of the time. Do you ever record as an ensemble, either in a studio or in, in a, um, a production house? Doing a multi-voice or something like yes. that. I mean, I have I have gone and been directed. I did last year. I did um, you know George R. R. Martin's Fire and Blood. The yeah, I'm actually listening to that right history, now. First part of the history of the Targaryens. Yeah, and and that because of I think for for well they wanted to keep security and also I think they just want to make sure it was done right. And they they brought me into their studios here in L.A. in Woodland Hills. Um, uh, and I love it so far, by the way. Say that again. I said, I'm listening to it right now, and I love it so far. I'm about oh, uh, two thirds of the way through. I, it was a wonderful, a wonderful thing. And in fact, I'm, I'm looking for a chance to to shake hands with George R. R. Martin at some point. And uh, I see he's doing a New Zealand conference next year. My wife is doing one on voice at exactly the same time. So I'm actually going to go out there, and uh, I've, I've, it's the World Fan, uh, World Science Fiction Convention 2020 is in New Zealand. Wow, so I'm going to awesome. go out there, and hopefully, I'll be able to meet George and thank him for that. You know, I did um, the first Dune was uh, they did that as a kind of a multi-voice and I did all my bits and then my bits were attached to their bits. And I've done a bunch of uh, books that have multi-characters in them, multiple uh, narrators, um, but I've I've never sat in the room. I would have loved to. I did Dracula. That was one of the Audi winners. It had Tim Curry and, and Alan Cumming in it and uh, it was a great cast. And I would have loved to have been in the room and recorded with them, but I never got to meet them. I had to do it on my own, uh, my little bits. But um, no, so I, I, I haven't I haven't done any ensemble. I mean, I went into the studio recently. Um, my colleague who who's used to be at the BBC Two, Dirk Mags, he does a lot of audio drama, and he was recording the William Gibson Alien Three script, um, and he'd done all the main, all a lot of the supporting characters in London. They'd all been recorded and done, but he came over here to get William Beale and Lance Henriksen. Um, who were the two actors from Alien 2 who right. were going to be in the William Gibson script. And he had to do them separately. So he had me and my colleague uh, Elizabeth Nolden, um, another narrator in L.A., and we sat in and we did all the other voices to, so that Lance Hendrickson and um, and William Beale could you know, give life to their characters by acting off us. And we were all in the same room at the same time doing that. And that was a lot of fun. But for narration, no, that's that's not happened. Very cool. So moving back to your studio, your happy place, I've seen in previous interviews that you're a bit of a gearhead like Paul and myself. <laughs> so I was wondering if you'd mind giving us a little studio tour, like what kind of microphone or booth do you like to use? Yeah, um, it's interesting. You know, over the years, and I, I suppose this is when people come into the industry, you start relatively cheap. You've got to get something that works. These days you can get stuff that works relatively cheaply. Um, and I can remember... I used to use Windows computers and so on and so forth. Everything needed replacing every two or three or four years. And it was just a pain. And I think I've had this set up for, for about 10 years, something like that. Um, the microphone, to begin with that, is a Neumann U87. Um, I had the TLM 103 before that. Uh, oh, I used a Sennheiser 416 for a brief period. Um, what happened was I was looking for other microphones, trying out different ones, and I thought, oh, I'll try the U87. I hope to God I don't like it because it's so expensive. <laughs> and it seemed to be the one that, that unfortunately fitted my voice perfectly. But the thing is, it's worked solidly for years. Um, it's a good investment for me. works for my voice. Mm-hmm. doesn't always work for everybody else's. Um, my, my cubicle is a little 6 by 4 by 7 vocalbooth.com. 
Um, I'm sitting here. I've got a solid iron chair. I don't have one of those sort of fancy Harman Kardon or whatever they call them chairs. I can't remember. But it's, oh, uh, it's Aaron Miller's or whatever. Yeah, that's it. Herman Miller. Herman Miller. Like that. That's right. Those, yeah. those speakers. Um, Together we can make it. But well, there you go. <laughs> but, but it's uh, it's a good solid one piece thing, and it, it doesn't. It's never going to creak because it's like got a cast iron frame. Um, I read off a, an iPad Pro. Um, I was just reading off it today, thinking, I wonder if I can find an excuse to buy the new iPad Pro because that's what it's all about. Is finding the new an excuse to buy the new one. Oh yeah so but it's the big one because um, i did have an original the smaller ipad but i'm getting older and once the ipad pro was um introduced i i leapt on that because it takes me mm. back to the days when you had pieces of paper in front of you it's that size and back in the day i would have piles and piles of paper um i have a screen in front of me it's a relatively large one i think 20 inches across i think uh what else is in here so everything else then leads through a hole in the wall to my mac mini um and i've had that for many years i have an apollo is it apollo one solo i'd have to lean out and have a look and i that involves me walking apollo away from twin solo. i don't think you'd like that um i have a grace m103 is my preamp which is wow. a bit fancy i don't really mm -hmm. need that i did i tried um uh the, the valve one um, because I thought that might bring warmth and stuff. But I, the difference was negligible and valves deteriorate. And the difficulty with recording is you don't want anything deteriorating on you. I used to have a microphone. I can't remember which one it was way back, but it, it had a sort of battery inside it. It was an American-made thing. Oh, it was the CAD? CAD E100? Oh, it could be, yes. But it was like the first one. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, it was. And the thing is, I went through a period of time where I would be recording for an hour and the volume would be dropping off, and I wouldn't be aware of it until <laughs> I looked at the file. And I can remember boosting the volume, the gain. <laughs> when I was, you know, in my post, you know, after I'd been in the studio, I'd have to boost the end of the chapter to try and make the whole thing sound normal. That was, um, you know, that's that's a sort of, you don't want to cut corners. You need uh, you need the, the top gear. So, yeah, so that's my, my uh, I, I, so I don't, the idea of a valve thing that could deteriorate and I wouldn't absolutely know what was happening. And I've had that experience with preamps, that uh, cheaper, mm. smaller preamps, something starts going wrong and you don't really know it's going wrong until it's really wrong. And then you wonder what on earth have you spoiled that you've been recording for the last month or two. But um, I think that's pretty much it. I tend to, I then, uh, I have the files on the Mac Mini. Uh, I'm extravagant. I have an iMac 27-inch in the office outside here that I then, uh, I transfer the files to that. I, I have a storage that I put them on first and I transfer it over. So I've got lots of backups. That's important. And, um, and I record, uh, and I, I do my editing on that. The software I use because not because I think it's better than anything else, so don't suddenly rush out and buy it because I said so. Not that anybody would, but I um I use Steinberg's Wave Lab. Um, I twenty five years ago because I started recording onto uh, onto computer hard drives in nineteen ninety six, which is probably before a lot of people did. Mm -hmm. Um, and I went to find software, and this guy sold me the Cubase thing, the whole thing, which is a music recording software. And like 25 CD discs and stuff to load it onto the computer. And I found this WaveLab 1.0 in the middle of this, which worked perfectly. It was all I needed. And I've stayed with it ever since then. And now we're on uh, WaveLab, I think, nine elements. Uh, WaveLab 9.5 is what I'm on now. I've got elements in the studio and I have the professional one in the, uh, in the office. But I think elements is actually 
a WaveLab Elements has everything you need for uh, for audiobook recording. But yeah, as you say, I'm a gearhead. I like to have way more than I need. I think that covers pretty much everything in my in my recording chain, as they call it. Well, it's great. I mean, it's very simple but elegant setup, and I think you can just hear like all of the the tongues of gearheads everywhere just salivating from the description of your studio. <laughs> well, I think back to when I started in the corner of a garage in, in Walnut Creek in Northern California with, with moving blankets hanging over the sides. And I had, I think, a $50 Shaw microphone and a little, I had a two tape deck, a two, two cassette tape deck. And <laughs> you could sort of do a you did this punch and roll. I don't use punch and roll. I use straight record. But but back in the day, it was a sort of punch and roll. It was the only way you could do it with a cassette. You just you'd make a mess. So you'd run it back. You'd listen, and then you'd drop it into the drop it into record and pick up. And very manual. Yeah, <laughs> but gives you a whole the... new appreciation for what's available now. Oh, it's it's just. I mean, kids today don't know how lucky they are. <laughs> kids in there. MP3s. Line, you engineers. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's a bit like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. It sounds like you you're right at home in your little cubicle of the world. I was wondering about the booth because I almost bought your old booth. I know that you had you had sold it to Sean Pratt at one point. And well, yeah, I was training with Sean at the time, and he was getting rid of it when he was moving back to Oklahoma. And he said, "Do you want it?" It it, it, it was Simon Vance's before me, and I just I said. Ooh, it's very tempting, but and in the end, I couldn't keep, I couldn't have the space for it in my house. That was a, that was Gretsch. That was a Gretsch can. I yes, still making. But yeah, that was um, I, yeah, because I moved up to the vocalbooth dot com, and I think uh, I think Blackstone Audio bought it from me, and then uh, Sean bought it from them, and I don't know where it went. But then when I because uh, for uh, for a couple of years I was working in both uh, around San Francisco. Uh, where we owned a house and where we were renting down in LA. There's a whole complicated life story in there, but we were down here for other reasons as well before we finally moved down to Los Angeles. But I had to have two studios and I actually had one of um, one of those made ones. Uh, uh, Scott Peterson. Hmm? Scott Peterson. Scott, Scott Peterson, yes. <laughs> so in the two places, I had the vo- vocalbooth.com up north and I had the Scott Peterson booth down south. And then when we finally moved down here, I had to move Scott Peterson booth out because that was hard to move a hefty old thing. And Andrea Ems bought that. And she actually had me sign it. Really? <laughs> so so she, she pays a little tribute to me, apparently, every time she gets into the booth. And it seems to be working for her. She's doing awfully well. Well, actually, I was curious, which model of vocalbooth.com booth was that? Because I know they have different, like, silver and gold and diamond. Platinum. Uh, which one? The, the one I have now or the one I s- sold? Oh, uh, your current one. My current one is well, I I can't. Is it? It's double walled. So that's it's the platinum. Walled. I think it might be diamond. Uh, is it shaped like a diamond? No. That's the platinum. Okay, platinum. Sorry. It's double walled. We're it's ridiculous gear, gearheads too. <laughs> it's got to be about ten years old, I think. And I've I've taken it down and put it up so many times. I'm going to do it one more time. I'm building a, a an outside uh, down at the bottom of the garden in this house we we bought in uh, near Pasadena. Um, and we're going through a nightmare of permitting with L.A. County. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's taking forever, but I'm going to have a room down there. It's going to be like, I think, was it uh, 14 by 22 feet? And I'm going to put this in the corner of that until I get to the point where I want to be. I want to build one into that room. Mm. Um, probably use George Whittam for that, who's a very good engineering guy. Yeah, good friend of the show. So um, I'll, I'll um, but I'm, but this has been great 
and it's it's I mean it's not the easiest thing to take down, but actually my wife and I have managed it just between the two of us, and ideally three people. But uh, I I I highly recommend their booths. Um, you know, so they're good stuff. Very cool. Well, thank you for that. My gear list is satisfied for another week. <laughs> <laughs> so before we go, Simon, I want to know what's next for Simon Vance. I mean, are there any projects or titles that you can, that you're excited about that you can mention? I mean, you talked about uh, yeah. the the one in the Millennium series. Are there anything else that you can talk about? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, the Millennium series is just starting that one. Um, uh, then uh, the one, the big one that's coming up uh, in a month or two. And I've been looking forward to it for four years or something. Brent Weeks uh, writes uh, a fantasy, and he's extremely successful. He had a, a whole series that was New York Times bestselling. And this is the Lightbringer series, and he hired me for that um, many years ago. I did the first. I actually did the second part first, and then we went back and redid the first part. And then the, it was supposed to be a trilogy. This is now the fifth part, and it's been coming for about three or four years. It was supposed to be ready last year. And it is, I just got the main script, or at least an advanced script, and it's uh, it's about 35 hours long. And it's the conclusion to the series. And I'm, I'm just so looking forward to it because he's he is absolutely one of my favorite writers. He has a great sense of humor, great plotting. The story, it's fantasy. It has to do with creating colors and fighting with colors. And it sounds nonsense, but somehow he makes the logic of it work. Um and as I say, his characters are wonderful, and I can't wait to get into it, although it's a huge 35 hours. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> There's a part of me going, I want this. No, I don't. Yes. No. Oh, God. Okay. Oh, come on. That's half as long as Jerusalem was. Yeah, It'll I be know. fine. <laughs> I don't know. But Jerusalem was in the past. That's done. It's like, <laughs> I don't know if I could ever do I, 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 I guess it's... Um, you do you, you deal with what you're given. You know, I would love to think, oh, yeah, I'll just do 10, 12-hour books from now on. But every so often, somebody drops this huge thing on your doorstep, and you go, oh, yeah, I can do that one bite at a time. Yeah, I know that feeling. Well, Simon, we've come to the end. We can't thank you enough for being on the VO Meter. I've been a big fan of yours ever since that Dune series we talked about, and just love your work, and we're so happy that you were able to join us today. Well, thank you so much, Paul. It was a pleasure to meet you at APEC as well this year. It was great. Yes, and, and Johnny's workshop. I, I really enjoyed your insights when you weren't being not interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think Alan will ever live that down. There. Paul, I mean, Paul, yeah. So I just wanted to extend my thank you to, to Paul's as well. And is there anything that you want to pr- promote before you leave? Where can people find out about Simon Vance? Um, I have a website, which I'm, I've been supposedly renewing over the last two years. I haven't got around to it yet. Um, I did have a Wikipedia page, but apparently some pirates have attached some links to it. So Wikipedia has just taken it down. We're in the process of trying to put it back up. Um, not that that's terribly expansive anyway. Um, but yeah, the website, simonvance.com. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I do Twitter. I am at Simvan, S-I-M-V-A-N. And I do have a Facebook page. I don't contribute to my professional page very much, but I'm on the other one too. You can spot me mm-hmm. a mile away. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thanks again so much, Simon. It was a real pleasure. And, and for me, thank you. It was great. As a voice talent, you have to have a website. But what a hassle getting someone to do it for you. And when they finally do, they break or don't look right on mobile devices. They're not built for marketing and SEO. They're expensive. You have limited or no control, and it takes forever to get one built and go live. So what's the best way to get you online in no time? 
go to voiceactorwebsites.com. Like our name implies, voiceactorwebsites.com just does websites for voice actors. We believe in creating fast, mobile-friendly, responsive, highly functional designs that are easy to read and easy to use. You have full control. No need to hire someone every time you want to make a change. And our upfront pricing means you know exactly what your costs are ahead of time. You can get your voiceover website going for as little as $700. So if you want your voice actor website without the hassle of complexity and dealing with too many options, go to voiceactorwebsites.com, where your VO website shouldn't be a pain in the you-know-what. Well, thank you, Mr. Vance, Mr. Golden Voice himself. That was really, really cool to have him on the show. It's been a lifelong goal. That's not true. It's been a several-year goal for Sean. <laughs> and not that uh, old, but <laughs> I was really excited when he reached out to us, actually, and just flattered that he wanted to be on our show. And I, I thank know. him so much. I was, I know. Like for for those of kind of pulling the curtain back a second, like after our um, Simon actually reached out to us and he said, "Man, you guys have had an audiobook roundtable, a British roundtable." Where was I? When can I get on your podcast? And you're like, uh, now? Like, you know, <laughs> I, I was a little beside myself, to be honest. I was really excited, and we quickly coordinated that. And here we are. So thanks again, Simon, for being on the podcast. You are a wealth of information, and I loved hearing your stories. So that pretty much wraps up this episode of the VO Meter. Measuring your voiceover progress. We've got a lot of great things coming up, so definitely stay tuned to the podcast. Yeah, our next episode of the show will actually feature the pig himself, Mr. Bob Bergen. And then coming up in the middle of September, September 13th, 14th, and 15th, I will be at the Vocation Conference in New York, where I'm actually recording the podcast live, hopefully getting Sean in as well on some remote uh, broadcast, and then also presenting a a session on networking. So if you go to the the webpage, you'll see the information on my session. Uh, Try not to laugh yourself silly when you see who else is presenting at the same time. But if you want to come by and say hi, I'd love to have you come to my session. Very cool. I know you're going to rock it, man. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to the VO Meter, measuring your voiceover progress. To follow along, please visit www.vometer.com. The VO Meter is powered by IPDTL. 